Since you have your copy of God's Word this morning, you can be turning to Matthew 27. We're almost done. We're almost through Matthew. It's it's uh, getting down to the the last few hours of Jesus' life here in the text as we've been going over in recent weeks. And the text this morning is a is a difficult one. Um, many of you, if if you've grown up in church, if you've heard preaching any amount of time. Uh, you're familiar with the fact that uh, the result of Judas betraying Jesus was that he committed suicide, and that is the text that we're looking at this morning, which is obviously a very sobering text and uh, not an easy one to try to unpack. Um, But by God's grace, I hope that uh, we can all have things a little more clearly in the end. If you found your way there, In Matthew 27, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 10 together. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read Matthew 27, 1 through 10. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned... He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took these pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then when when that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. You may be seated. So as we look at this text, as I said, you notice it it mentions that Judas hanged himself here, but that's not the central idea of the text. So we are going to talk about that, but there's a a, a deeper problem in this whole situation that I want us to see. And it's, again, I'll just emphasize this is part of the reason why we preach through books. As Pastor Chris and I were talking this morning, there are themes that run throughout books. And a lot of the themes that you've seen over and over again in recent weeks, you're going to see those continuing on again. Uh, today. So the title of the message this morning is, Do You Appreciate the King? Do you appreciate the King? That's the question that we have to answer at the end of our time this morning. Uh, What we value is relative. Uh, Certain things are are more important to people than others. Uh, One story that I found disturbing in recent years was uh, it contained pictures of uh, children in third world countries um, that had uh, been visited by Samaritan's Purse. Many of you are familiar with Operation uh, Christmas Child, where we pack the shoe boxes and send them to those children. And in some of these countries, they have uh, uh, markets, and there are men in the markets that are selling the shoe boxes. And so you see the shoe boxes disassembled and all the toys and the toothpaste and the things like that being sold on the black market there. And the question is why, and the answer is the, ch- the children end up, they and their parents end up taking and selling these shoeboxes for food. And so if they don't have enough food, they, they value the, a can of food more than they value a toy or hygiene items or whatever it is that they receive. And obviously it's not that way in every case, but I, I found that particularly disturbing. But the reason why is because what we value is relative. Uh, uh, you know, a million dollars here and a million dollars in another currency uh, can be a world of difference in what you can actually buy with it. It's only worth uh, what someone determines that it's worth. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is do we appreciate the king? How do we value him? Uh, how do we esteem him in, in our own lives? And we're going to see several examples of different ways that people have appraised him this morning. There's an example in the, in the story of the Titanic. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize, I understood with the Titanic that 
you know, many of those who uh, boarded the Titanic were incredibly wealthy because it was the most luxurious ship that had ever been built. And uh, when it went down, there were 11 millionaires that died uh, on that ship. Uh, one of them who survived uh, was Major A.H. Pukin. He, uh, he left $300,000 worth of money, jewelry, and securities uh, in his cabin when the ship was going down. And uh, his quote was, he said, the money seemed a mockery at that time. I picked up three oranges instead. So he left $300,000 of cash and jewelry and valuables on the Titanic in exchange for three oranges when he was getting into a lifeboat to save his life. Because at that, mo at that moment, this luxurious, beautiful ship and the greatest ship that had ever been built that, could, that was unsinkable, the most safe ship that could ever be built by mankind, uh, $300,000 just didn't seem like a big deal compared to your life. And so if the, the juice of an orange could save your life more than $300,000 in that moment, he felt like three oranges was worth more than a small fortune uh, that he had on the ship there. So what we value is relative. The first thing I want you to see in our text this morning is the value of regency. The value of regency. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So the value of regency. So, so what is a region? I just want to explain that because that's not a word that we use, but but it is a good word. Uh, normally, in, in a kingdom, you have a, a monarch. You have a king that rules. But what do you do when the king isn't able to rule, when he's sick or he's away at battle or he's unable to fulfill his responsibilities? Well, he appoints what is called a regent in his place, uh, someone who oversees his responsibilities to make sure that that happens. And so the first thing I want us to see here is the value of regency. And so these verses are talking about the worth of two people. One of them is the Messiah, Jesus, and the other is the magistrate, Pilate. So let's look at how the text values them. First, let's talk about the Messiah's worth. The Jewish leaders thought that they could judge Jesus, but they were ultimately judged by him. And as we saw in chapter 24, they were ultimately judged by him in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. So put yourself in the mindset of these Jewish leaders. How do they value Jesus? And how do they value their own regency? In other words, Jesus is the king of the Jews, which means the Jewish leaders who are bringing him to Pilate are regents. They are appointed by God to carry out God's business in place of the king when he's not there they apparently felt like they were in a position to sit in judgment on Jesus. But the reality is, is that the regent doesn't judge the king. The regent's authority comes from the king. And so instead of Jesus being judged by them, ultimately Jesus is the one judging them. And they are going to lose everything in 70 AD. They're going to lose the temple. They're going to lose their livelihood. Most of them will lose their actual lives, all of their wealth, their reputation, their families, everything that they have is going to be lost because Jesus is going to judge them. Because they can put him on trial, and as we will see, spoiler alert, the most that they're able to do is kill him, and then he comes back, and there's nothing you can do to a resurrected person. I mean, the worst thing you can do is kill somebody. What happens when you can't kill them anymore? You can't do anything to them anymore. The martyrs understand this too, by the way. It's You only die once, um, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. And Jesus understood that, but for them, the judgment that Jesus was able to bring against them versus what they were able to be, bring against him is immense. And in fact, Jesus doesn't even just judge the leaders. He judges all of Israel. He judges the entire nation of, of Israel in AD 70 by essentially cutting them off from God. This is part of the prophecy that we read in Zechariah. It doesn't just prophesy about Jesus uh, being sold for, for 30 pieces of silver, being betrayed, it also prophesies about God breaking off the covenant with Israel in judgment because of the way that they treated Jesus, because of the way that they treated, they violated his covenant by destroying his Messiah, his own son. Here's an ironic thing. 
there's, there's, there's irony here that I want you to see. The Jewish leaders here, now remember, they're bringing him to Pilate. They tied him up, and they're bringing him to Pilate, the governor. The Jewish leaders arranged a meeting between their authority figure, Pilate, and Pilate's authority figure, Jesus. So they think that they're bringing Jesus to Pilate so that uh, the one that's in authority over them can make a judgment upon Jesus. But what they don't realize is, is they're actually bringing Pilate's judge to him to judge both Pilate and them. So Jesus might be the one with his hands tied, but Pilate's the one that doesn't have authority because he's a regent. Because Romans 13 explains to us that even the civil government only has authority because God gives them authority. That is where their, their power comes from. So it's very ironic that they think that they're bringing Jesus to be judged, but reality is they're bringing Jesus to judge them, to judge all of them. We must be careful to avoid putting ourselves in a judgment seat over God like these leaders did. Uh, it's acceptable uh, for us to petition God for answers in prayer, but we should not question his character unless we want to see his wrath. We have to remember that. Uh, this, is, this is a holy and sovereign and jealous God that does not tolerate idols, that does not tolerate false religion, that does not tolerate hypocrisy. He does not tolerate anyone questioning his character. Um, if you really want to see somebody uh, upset, disrespect their character. It's one thing to disagree with something somebody does. It's another thing to accuse that person of some kind of character flaw. We've, we've all told a lie in here before at some point. Uh, even if it wasn't intentional, you've said something that was untrue. It's different for somebody to point out, hey, you know, you said that and it wasn't truthful. Well, you know, you, you might disagree with the person, but ultimately you're not really offended by that. When that person says, you're a liar, then you get offended because it's attacking your character. What they're saying to the Son of God here is, you're a liar. You're not who you say you are. Not only that, not only you're a liar, you're a blasphemer. You're an enemy of God. You hate God. These are the kind of things that they're accusing Jesus about. Now, if you want to see, if you want to see me get, get angry, go, go, uh, go attack the character of one of my kids. You're probably going to make me mad. When Rebecca and I were in Miami a few weeks ago, we saw these two dads almost get in a fist fight. Uh, in Miami because uh, one of their kids was riding a scooter and ran in front of another kid or something. And so uh, one of these guys had obviously had something to drink and uh, was yelling at the other dad of like, hey, your kid got in my kid's way. And he's like, you know, well, your kid, whatever, and called him a name or something like that. And they were about to go to a fist fight right there in public. And everybody else is like, hey, guys, like, calm down. And the, the women are like, you know, hey, it's not a big deal. Let it go. But these guys were ready to fight. Why? Because it was something about the character. You're not raising that kid right. You're, you're a bad parent. That's a good way to make somebody angry when you start attacking their character. Now, imagine going to Almighty God and pointing your finger in his face and accusing his character. This is why we have to be careful in times of suffering. When we're going through times of suffering, it's, it's easy to be angry at God. And God knows that we're angry. He knows our feelings, and he can handle that. But we need to make sure that we never accuse him of being something that he's not. Because that's a good way to make him angry. When something happens in your life and you want to curse God like Job's wife told him to do, do what Job did and read God's word and understand who God is and say, I have nothing to say. Job had the correct response. When the Lord spoke to him out of the world, his response was, I'm sorry that I opened my mouth. That should be our response whenever God brings things into our life is, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to trust that you are who you say you are, and that's going to be good enough for me. So we see the Messiah's worth here. They didn't think he was worth a whole lot because they were bringing him to Pilate. They didn't know who he was. It's like undercover boss, you know? Um, contrast that with the magistrate's worth, this man Pilate. So who is this man Pilate? We could go into detail about him, but uh, one commentator said, uh, Philo and Josephus, which are two uh, historians, characterized Pilate as vile, cruel, and cagey. His weak character and lack of concern for truth and justice are clear from the New Testament descriptions of his behavior. And so Pilate was not a righteous man. Now, you can read later on in John and other places, uh, they ha the Jesus and Pilate end up having a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, and, and Pilate clearly understands that, that Jesus is innocent, and yet he still proceeds with this, which again 
just evidences the fact that he's wicked and he was more concerned about the Jews getting him in trouble with his superiors than he was about crucifying the Son of God. Um, and so he had a serious uh, fear of man problem there. There's something that I want to point out here about, uh, about, about the magistrate, and, and I want to encourage you to think more about this. I want to encourage you to study more about this on your own because we are in an age in history where we need to understand this better. Jesus was being judged by a civil authority because he claimed to be a civil authority. That's the reason why he was judged. So you remember, they, they, they're going to the Romans, who are the civil government, and saying, uh, we want this man put to death, and they're saying, this is a Jewish issue. You have a religious problem with him. We don't deal in religion. You guys work it out on your own. And so initially they reject him and say, Jesus isn't our problem. Your Messiah thing and your, your worship and your temple and all, that's your Jewish stuff. You guys work that out in-house. That's not our problem. Until they come and say, well, no, he's actually claiming to be a civil magistrate. Jesus is actually claiming to be a king, specifically a king of the Jews, but even claiming to be the king of kings, of every ruler. Now, all of a sudden, it is a problem for the Romans. And I want us to pay attention to that, because I think that we, we may have forgotten in recent history that Jesus is still a civil magistrate. So Jesus is not a king today in a metaphorical sense. We are not being metaphorical. We're not being symbolic when we say that Jesus is king. Jesus is an actual king right now. He is the king of America. He is the king of Haywood County. He is the king of Waynesville. And we're, we're, not, we're not being figurative when we say that. We're saying literally when it comes down to it, all authority in, in this country, all authority that we experience is under the ruling kingship of Jesus and that what God says in his word about the way that things should be done or not done is not a suggestion to us about how we should uh, order our lives or our church or our society. It is a decree coming from a king of, you will do this, you will not do this. Now, Israel understood that because they didn't, they didn't separate church and state. What we need to understand is, in our, in our society is, is we do have a separation of church and state to a degree, but that's for a functional purpose. The reality is, is there, there is no separation of church and state in reality, not because the church is governing the state, but because Jesus is governing the state. So the church is its own nation that is working within the nation of America under the authority of King Jesus. But the reality is, is that uh, the president exists because God says. Elections are won because God says. All of, all of these things happen in the providence of God. And whether we think it's right or not is irrelevant because he is actually the one that's making the decisions. He's the one that calls the shots. And so we need to remember that he is an actual king today. So when you read the Bible and it tells you to do something or to not do something, that is your king. You are his servant. You are in his kingdom. That is your king demanding that you obey him. So there, there's, no, there's no room for, uh, well, I think that sounds pretty good, or I understand that this is what the Bible says, but I really want to do it this way. There's no room for that. Well, you know, it's, a, it's just a little white lie. It's not like a big lie. Well, God said don't lie, period. He said don't commit adultery, period, which means if you have impure thoughts about somebody, you're in sin, you're under the condemnation of God, and you need to repent, period. Whether it's your definition of it or not, if God says something, it is what it is. And we have to remember that we are still under that authority today that he is not a figurative king, he is literally a king that has the power of life and death in his hands for all of us, believers and unbelievers. So the value of regency here, where did Pilate get his value from? The answer is he got his value from Jesus, ironically enough, the one that he was trying to judge. The second thing that I want you to see in the text here is the value of remorse. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. So the value of remorse. How much is remorse worth? Have you ever had buyer's remorse? 
you go out and get something and you think, oh, I really need this, and then you can't return it. You wait too long. I bought this little uh, invisible fence for our dog, and it was like a pretty pricey one because they're very expensive, and I was like, okay, our dog's goes crazy and he doesn't listen very well so maybe this fence will at least keep him from running out in the road or something like that and you know they tell you on there you got to put these little flags out and train it and I'm like okay if I can't just plug it in and it works it's probably not going to happen because I'm not going to take the time to train this dog obviously or he would already be trained and so months later when I decided to actually plug the thing in for the first time and say you know what I'm putting the collar on him and just letting him go wild and let's see what happens uh, it didn't work I bought it brand new, and it, did, it didn't even work at all. And I'm frustrated, and I spent all this money on it. But guess what? It's been months ago. It is beyond the return period. So do I have buyer's remorse for spending all of that money on an invisible dog fence that I can't actually use now and I can't take back? Yes, I have some remorse for making that unwise uh, financial decision there. You can't return sin. Uh, it, has, it has no return window. Uh, you can't exchange it for some kind of credit. When you sin against God, it's out there. The toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. You, you, can't, you can't do anything about it. This is our problem. Adam couldn't fix it, and he only had one to fix, and he couldn't fix that one. We definitely can't fix all the things in our life, so what do we do? There's only one person that can exchange sin for righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. He is able to take on the sins of his people and suffer the punishment for them, which is why the cross is necessary, and in exchange, credit his righteousness to their account. So we're all going to show up to heaven with no receipt and being unable to return our sin, and they're going to say, why should I let you and why should I get in here? Well, he made an exchange for me. I talked to the manager, and he, he said it was okay. He made an exchange for me. So even though I don't have a receipt, even though I can't do anything to pay this back, even though uh, I, I have a problem here, the manager's taking care of it for me. So I'm, trust, I'm trusting in the manager's authority to say that I can get in, essentially. This is the position that we're in uh, with the gospel. So there's two types of repentance that we see here in this text and then again in the broader story, because you've got to remember, this text is kind of like a parenthesis, right? The story is really about Jesus and we just talked about Peter and Peter denying Jesus, and then it kind of takes a little break here to look at Judas and what Judas is doing. So we've got to remember the big picture here. But there's two kinds of repentance. There's true repentance, and there's traitorous repentance. There's two kinds, and we see that exemplified in Peter and Judas. Two sinners, two people who denied Jesus, two people who betrayed him with their actions, but who had a different form of repentance that resulted in a different relationship with Christ. So what did true repentance look like? Well, for Peter, true repentance looked like when he heard that rooster crow, it says that he wept bitterly. And he wept bitterly when nobody was watching. He was, he was off by himself. He wasn't making a show. It wasn't about people seeing how spiritual he was. He was broken inside. Have you ever, have you ever wept bitterly by yourself? Uh, I, I would think that's a pretty common human experience. I, I know I have. But sometimes when you're alone and, and you're just... Uh, you recognize, especially like with your own sin, you know, maybe you read something or you hear a sermon or some, a friend says something to you and it just strikes you and you're sitting there alone and you're just, you're just broken over it. You're just tired of seeing that sin in your life and you just want to be free and, and you're done with it and you just weep bitterly like, God, take this away from me. Like, let, get this out of my life. That's where Peter was. But it wasn't just emotions. It wasn't just crying because Peter turned to Jesus for forgiveness. So where did Peter turn to when he wanted things to be right? He showed up in Galilee where Jesus said he was going to be. Jesus said, I'll meet you there. And remember, there's this whole conversation, Pastor Chris alluded to it, of Jesus cooking them breakfast on the beach. And they're sitting there, and there's this conversation there of, like, do you love me, Peter, right, three times, which is like, you know, when we get to that point, I'll let that sermon preach itself, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of redemption. But it was real repentance because Peter wasn't just upset about the sin, but he knew that Jesus was the only one he could come to. The same Peter who said, 
where else can we go? You have the words of life is the same one that actually went to Jesus when there was nowhere else that he could go for the forgiveness of his sins. So he believed in Jesus enough to know that even though he had betrayed him, even though he had failed as a disciple, that there was no one else to go to for forgiveness, that it had to be Jesus, the one that he had betrayed, that he had to face and admit that he had sinned against him. And we all have to do that. So that's what true repentance looks like. What does traitorous repentance look like? It looks like Judas. Why was Judas upset? Notice there in the text, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, what does he mean? Well, in Deuteronomy 27, 25, it says that basically if you sell somebody out to be killed, if you lie or you do something like that to be killed, then you're cursed by God. So Judas wasn't upset because he betrayed Jesus. He was upset because he was ashamed of being cursed. Because all of these priests and other people, they knew that he was a traitor. They knew that he had sold Jesus out. So why was he upset? It wasn't ups- he wasn't upset because of his relationship with Jesus. He was upset because now he had to live with shame. Now he had to walk around and people knew that he was a worthless guy, that he didn't stand behind his friends, that he didn't do the hard things, that all he cared about was money. He lost his reputation in doing this. And he was ashamed because he had a bad reputation in front of people. And so his repentance is simply a fear of man. It's simply, uh, I don't want people to think that I'm a bad person. That's not true repentance. When you do something wrong, and then you want to go and confess to somebody, or you want to admit publicly, hey, I had this sin, or, or whatever the case may be in your life, you, you, want to, you want to confess something and say that you're repenting of it, we need to ask ourselves, am I re- if nobody saw me, would I still be repenting? Would I still be going before God and changing? Or am I doing this because I'm seen by people and it makes my conscience feel better for people to not think that I'm who I really am on the inside? That's fake repentance. That's traitorous repentance. Notice also Judas didn't feel remorse until his sin was completed. It was over now. He couldn't do anything about it. And as he goes back and he's trying to give him the money back, like, hey, you know, uh, I was just kidding. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really mean it. But he wanted to wait until he got the money before he wanted to go out and do it. Have you ever done that with sin? I have, just being honest. There's been times where I just wanted to sin. I felt tempted to do something, and I wanted to do it, and I did it. And I felt convicted afterwards of whatever it was, but I, but I still went through with the sin, whatever, whatever it may have been. There's been times in my life where I've done that. And by God's grace, the conviction comes. Uh, and there's real repentance, and then, the, and, and then the, the repentance, again, isn't about what other people think about me. The repentance is, ab- is about what God thinks about me. Am I right with him should be my concern. If I'm right with him, I will be right with other people, right? This is why the commandments are ordered the, the same way. Love God first, and then love your neighbor. Why? If you try to do it backwards, it won't work. If you try to love your neighbor and get to loving God by loving your neighbor, it won't work. This is the reason why the social gospel doesn't work. You can go out and feed every person, clothe every person, do everything, and die and go to, die and go to hell. Because you can't truly understand what it means to love that person if you don't love God first. If you don't know the love of God, you can't love other people. That's the reason why the, the commandments are ordered that way. That's the reason why Jesus ordered the law that way. So here's things that traitors can confess about Christ. Think about this this morning. These are things that traitors will say are true about Jesus. They'll say that Jesus is innocent. Judas said that here. I betrayed innocent blood. Uh, They'll say that Jesus is God. They'll say that Jesus died to save sinners. They can say that Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's a historical fact. A traitor can say that. A traitor can even say that everyone who trusts in Jesus alone will be saved. Sometimes we think that, that traitors or people who betray Jesus are these really horrible, angry, atheistic people. And there's some of those out there. But there's a whole lot of people that attend church every Sunday that are traitors to Jesus. And they can say all the right things. They can confess everything that I just said is true. And they can say that it's true. That doesn't mean that any of it applies to them. I can stand up here and be a traitor to Jesus. And if I work hard enough to make my life look good for a while, I can convince all of you that I'm really saved, even if I'm really not. It's happened. I have friends that aren't in ministry right now because that's exactly what they did. They ran out of steam. They just couldn't keep up the show long enough, and their life blew up, and then now they're not in ministry anymore and may not even be saved at all. 
because they just ran out of steam of trying to, to prop themselves up. You can believe all of those things this morning and be a traitor just like Judas. We know if someone is a traitor to Jesus by what they do and not by what they say. Judas talked a good game. Remember, he followed Jesus for three years. He was even the guy that was in charge of the money bag. That, was, that would be somebody that you trust. They, some people would make the argument, well, it seems like Judas is probably the, the disciple that Jesus trusts the most because he's the one that he even lets them carry around the money for everybody. If Judas uh, wasn't, wasn't handling the money right, they wouldn't have been able to eat, wouldn't have had anywhere to stay, wouldn't have been able to get clothes when they needed to. So they could even make an argument by Judas' works, by his appearance on the outside, that he was one of the greatest of the disciples. He's the one that Jesus trusts with all the money. But he's a traitor by what he does and not by what he says. And we can do the same thing this morning. You can be in every single event in church and serve on every team and, and do everything, but your actions will show what you actually believe. And we, ha we have to ask ourselves, are we betraying Jesus with our lives? Did you betray Jesus this week while you were driving? Did you betray him with something that you said online this week? Did you betray him with the way that you treated your family and your friends? Are you betraying him this morning by not even hearing this message because there's something else that you value more in your mind? Are you betraying him by failing to keep your commitments to him? What are you doing this morning? Are, are you attempting to absolve your guilt by yourself this morning like Judas did? Or are you going to the Savior for forgiveness as Peter did? Those are your options. We're all, we're all guilty here. Everybody is guilty. But the question is, are we going to have true repentance or traitorous repentance? Are we going to do like Judas and try to fix it on our own? Or are we going to do like Peter and just come to Jesus and say, you know that I love you? The third thing I want you to see in the text this morning is the value of rejection. The value of rejection. Look at verses 5 through 8. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So how do we value his rejection here? He was rejected by them. They said, see to it yourself. You figure it out with your own sin. These priests who are supposed to be helping the people of God reconcile with God are saying, deal with it yourself. It's not our problem. The thing we see is love discarded. When he throws this, this money into the temple, he's throwing it into what's called the court of the priest. If you look at the temple and the way it's laid out, there's these different courts going all the way into the Holy of Holies, which is like the place that only the high priest can go into at certain times. But there's these other courts. You know, there's a court of the Gentiles where non-Jews are allowed to be in there. There's, you know, the court of Israel where Jewish people are allowed to go. He goes all the way to the entrance of the court of the priest. In other words, if you're not a priest, you can't even be in this part of the building. And he throws the money in there. When they reject him, he throws the money into the court of the priest. Why does he do that? Because they have to pick it up. There's nobody else to pick it up. They can't go to the Gentiles and say, this is dirty money, you pick it up. The priests are forced to have to do something with it when he throws it in there because they're the only ones that are allowed to go in there. So they're telling him, this is your problem, you deal with it. And he's saying, no, you deal with it. And he throws the money in, in there. It's your money now. It's your problem now. It's not my problem anymore. This is the argument that's happening. And remember, this is in the temple, so there's probably other people around there seeing this. So if any of them, it's a small enough town, remember, they recognized Peter last week. You know, hey, aren't you the one that was, they're going to recognize Judas. And they're saying, well, now his disciples in here, and he's like screaming at the priest, and they're throwing money at each other. And like, you know, I mean, like, if you saw that happening at Ingalls this afternoon, like word would get around town, like, hey, some guy was in there screaming, throwing money at the manager at Ingalls. It's a small community. Like, we're going to hear about something like that. It's going to end up in the Mountaineer, right? The same thing here. Again, Judas is now ashamed because now everybody knows. You know, they're saying, oh, this, this is uh, blood money. You know, we can't have this in here. And there's this whole exchange going on. People are like, what in the world is going on here? And, 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 and so his reputation is just gone at this point. 
The fact that they couldn't take the money into the treasury proves that they knew about the sin. So the priest couldn't say, if they had a clear conscience, they could take the money and put it in the treasury and just say, oh, well, we didn't know. We didn't know that it, that it was the price of blood. It's like Paul says about meat. If you don't want to eat meat offered to idols, don't ask where it comes from. Then it doesn't bother you anymore because your conscience is clear about it. It's the same thing with them. If they didn't know that he had done this to sell out Jesus, they could have taken the money in and just said, oh, well, we're innocent. We didn't know where the money came from. We just thought it was a donation to the treasury. But the fact that they say, we've got to do something else with this money, we can't put it in the treasury, means that all of them are guilty. All of them know that this was used specifically to accuse Jesus. Which again, Jesus' judgment when he comes down on Israel in a few years after he's ascended into heaven is not just on the high priest. It's not just on the priest class. It's not just on the person in the community. It's on every Jew. It's on all of Israel. All of Israel's buildings, all of Israel's treasury, all of the temple, all of their garments, all of their lives, their families, their livestock. It's, he's judging everything. Why? Because they were all guilty. Because the leaders of that community were all guilty. They knew that this was wrong. And, 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 and notice, notice the hypocrisy here. Again, you know, we, we, in our modern society, if you call someone a Pharisee, the assumption is you're calling that person a hypocrite. That's how much we connect the two terms together. Now, we understand there, there were actual Pharisees that actually did love the Lord. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. But Paul said that he was actually zealous for God, that he loved God's law. He wanted to obey God. He just, did, he just didn't know. He didn't know who Jesus was. And so we can't, we can't just say every Pharisee's always been horrible. That's not true. There were some that truly loved the Lord and wanted to serve the Lord. But in general, when we think about Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, high priests, all these different offices that they have in Israel, Jesus said that they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel when it comes to the law. So think about this. What they're saying here is we have to go buy this potter's field with this money because we can't take it into the treasury. In other words, we are more concerned about how to spend the blood money in obedience to God's law than we are with the fact that we violated the sixth commandment and murdered someone. They're more concerned about what it looks like than what it actually is. God didn't care how they spent the money. They're murderers. They're not going to stand before God and he's going to say, how did, how did you use these finances? He's going to say, you're a murderer. You broke one of the Ten Commandments. You broke the law. And not only are you a murderer of someone, you are a murderer of the Messiah, of my anointed one, of the one that I sent to save your people. This is the, do you understand? This is what Peter preached in Acts. When Pentecost happened, under the power of the Holy Spirit, what did he preach? He said, you have crucified the Son of God, preaching to Israel. He's saying, every one of you has the blood of the Messiah on your hands because you were the ones that cried out, crucify him. You were the ones that did it. And remember, it says they were cut to the quick and they, and they said, what must we do to be saved? So for them, the conviction actually came at Pentecost where 3,000 were saved and just said, oh no, like what could we even possibly do at this point to be saved? And what's the response? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? Um, that, that's the good news. That's the place that we all have to come to. That wasn't their response. There's no conviction of sin here. It's conviction of uh, if all these people saw this interaction going on and they know that Judas is one of Jesus' disciples and he's talking about blood money and they're throwing money at each other, whatever, we can't just go put this in the treasury because all these people saw this. So we've got to do something spiritual with it. So let's go buy a field for strangers like Gentiles, uh, outcast of society. We'll buy a field to be able to bury them in to give them a proper burial. And that looks really spiritual. So we can do that. And that way we're not putting the money in the treasury. So we're not breaking the law for all these people that saw us do this. And it still makes us look really good in the end, which is all they were really concerned about. This whole time, that's all they were concerned about. Not about the fact that they were all murderers. Judas discarded his love. He loved money more than Jesus. And in the end, when it's all said and done, he threw the money away. He threw what he loved away. He discarded his love in the end of this. We must make sure that what we're loving will last. 
There's not a whole lot in this life that lasts. There's really not. And whatever we leave behind, most of it is going to burn up in the end anyways, no matter how long it lasts. We have to make sure that we're loving something that will last. Judas loved money, and the chief priest loved power, but they both lost it all in the end. Judas, Judas, not only did Judas not get to enjoy the money that he got by ill-gotten gains, he even get to enjoy his life. He cut his own life off. These guys think that they can hide from God by going out and buying a field like God doesn't know anything about the field because they have no fear of God and they don't really believe in him. Otherwise, they would read his word and understand that he sees everything that they do, that he knows the intentions of their heart, that he's going to sit in judgment on him. But they were so concerned with the pleasures of this life and what people thought about them that they were willing to spend eternity in hell under the judgment of God for, for people liking them right now. And before we judge them, let's be honest that sometimes we deal with that too. We're more concerned about what other people think about us than we are about what God thinks about us. That's a problem. God is going to judge the idols in your life the same way that he judged the gods of Egypt with the plagues. If you go back and look at the plagues in Israel, every one of those plagues was a judgment on one of Egypt's gods. And whatever it is in your life that you're idolizing, that you love more than him, that you're willing to sell him out for, whether it's money or respect or position or, or material things or relationships or whatever it is that you're willing to sell him up, God is going to judge that idol in your life. The scripture says that he chastises every son that he loves. If you, if you idolize things in your heart and God doesn't judge it, you're not his. He'll let you go on in your sin. That's what happened with Judas. Jesus says in John 17, I haven't lost anyone that the Father has given to me except the son of perdition. There's only one person that Jesus ever lost, and that's Judas, and that was because that was God's plan for Judas' life, and Jesus let him go on his way and let him go and do what he did, and he went and hanged himself. He let him go on to his, to his own construction, be, destruction because he wasn't a son, because he wasn't a true disciple. If you're able to pursue the idols in your life and you receive no judgment, you don't belong to him, and you need to be, you need to be scared. If you know right now, if you, if you read the Word of God, and you know the Word of God says that something in your life is an idol, and you know that that's true, just like how traitors can confess truth, you know that that's true, and yet you don't see any difficulty coming into your life as a result of that idol, you, you need to recognize that that may be a clear sign that you are not in Christ. However, if you do see that correction, you need to receive that correction as a son or a daughter and say, you know what, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. This is an idol in my heart. I see you dealing with it. And instead of resisting you, instead of trying to hold on to this idol, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. You're the king and I'm not the king. I don't get to decide. So we see love discarded, but we also see life discarded. Judas did all of this and then he went and hanged himself. Suicide is rebellion against God's sovereign appointed times, and it violates the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. Taking your own life is a sin. You are murdering yourself. And, and what's the real problem with murder? Everybody dies. Everybody's going to die. So why does it matter how a person dies, whether it's something they do or something they don't do? The reason why is, is because God appoints times. He controls the calendar. He controls how many hairs are on your head. He controls how many days are on your life. Well, did, did uh, Judas surprise God by doing this? No. Like we just said, G Jesus himself said that he knew that Judas was going to be lost, that that was part of God's plan. So Judas didn't trick God by taking his own life. But what he did is he spit in the face of God. And ultimately, that's what suicide is. And I don't say that to minimize the, the, the pain that people go through. But ultimately, suicide is spitting in the face of God and saying, you know what, even if you are sovereign, I'm going to do my best to get my own way in the end. I'm better than you. I'll decide how many days I have. But the good news is, is Jesus died for murderers. Everyone who commits suicide is a murderer, according to Scripture. But Jesus died for murderers. We need to remember that. If you've grown up in a Roman Catholic background, you might be of the persuasion that suicide is a mortal sin, that if someone commits suicide, they automatically go to hell. I'd like to encourage you this morning that the Bible does not say that anywhere. There's not one verse in the Bible that says that. It's made up by the Catholic Church. 
Jesus died for murderers. Paul was a murderer. Jesus said it, if we've ever hated someone in, their heart, in our hearts, then we're a murderer before God. I'm a murderer before God. I've hated people before. And Jesus died for me too. Are you feeling the yoke of this life weighing you down this morning? If you don't know what a yoke is, it's those wooden things that go over oxen that helps them stay together so that they can plow something. Long before the days of John Deere, you had a plow and you had animals and you used animal power, like literal horsepower, to power your plow to, to be able to make rows and till up rocks and things like that out of the soil to be able to do that. This life has a yoke on it. You know, uh, you look around at some of these kids and you think their biggest problems in the world are like what they're going to eat for lunch today. And as an adult, you think to yourself, you're like, man, what, what happened to those days when that was my biggest issue is, you know, what, what am I going to wear today? Or, you know, what am I going to have for lunch after church? Or, you know, uh, is this person going to be my friend or not be my friend? You think about the burdens we deal with. We, do, we deal with a lot, of, a lot harder burdens than these little ones do. And it gets heavy. The weight of this life will crush you apart from Christ. It will destroy you. Ultim ultimately, I mean, think about it. That is why we're dying. That's part of why we're dying is our bodies are literally being broken down by this world until they are so broken down they just won't run anymore and we die. That's what happens. Are you feeling that this morning? Are, are, are you feeling just the weight of life just crushing you? And you just... And you just you feel like you can't take it anymore? I, I know for a fact, because some of you have told me that you felt like Judas here before, that you felt like you couldn't do it anymore. Some of us have been there. And if you're, if, if you're here this morning and you are considering killing yourself, I have two words for you. I have two things I want to say to you this morning. The first word that I have for you is surrender. The first thing that you have to do if you're contemplating suicide this morning or if you're feeling crushed by your life is surrender. You have to wave the white flag before God. You have to stop thinking that uh, pills or alcohol or relationships or money or whatever it is that, that you're trying to do to try to give you enough strength to just take another breath, to just make it another day. You've got to give all that up. You have to surrender that and wave the white flag and just say, God, I can't do this. I can't make anything out of my life. My life is too hard right now. It's too painful. I can't do it, and I'm ready to give up. And giving up doesn't mean taking your life. It means giving your life to him and surrendering and saying, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. That's the first thing that you have to do. It, what, are you, what are you giving to him? Give him your shame. Give him your sickness and your hopelessness. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, you're, you're, you're going to him and you're saying, you have to take it. It's too heavy for me. I can't do it. It's going to crush me. And if you don't take it, I, I, I'm going to die. I don't know what I'm going to do. This life is going to crush me if you don't take it. You have to roll your burdens off onto his strong shoulders and find rest there. Jesus said, his yoke is easy and his burden is light and you can come to him and find rest for your soul. Sometimes my soul gets tired and you know what? That's my fault. That's not God's fault. If you feel the yoke today, if you feel that, that's not God's fault because Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which means if you feel heavy, that means you're wearing the yoke and not him. So the first thing you have to do is surrender and just say, I need you to take this. I need you to take this sickness. I need you to take this financial situation. I need you to take this addiction. I need you to take the depression that I have. Whatever it is, like that, that, that whole cast your cares upon him. Rebecca and I have been talking about this lately. The words that he's using there is like, like lifting something heavy and just throwing it, like a, like a big sack of something, you know, and you're just, it's all you can do to get it up on your shoulder and then you toss it and you feel the relief of not having that weight on you anymore. Some of us need to do that this morning and we need to come to him and just say, here, this is, this is your problem now. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm not strong enough. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much you have to throw on him, he's strong enough. So it doesn't matter if you're just kind of a little bit of a sinner, which doesn't really exist. 
or if you're a really big sinner, or if you've had a few bad things in your life, or you've had a life of horrible trauma your whole life, it doesn't matter. He is strong enough for all of it. If you will cast it onto him, he can take everything. The second word that I have for you this morning is repent. Tell God today that you recognize you aren't the king of anything. If you're feeling that weight, if you're feeling that burden, if you're holding that yoke and you're trying to stand up and you're just buckling under it and you're like, I can do it, I can do it. Don't just surrender of that, repent of that because you're not understanding who he is and you're not understanding who you are. If we could bear the weight of sin in our lives, we wouldn't need Christ. The whole reason that God sent his only begotten son to die for us is so we don't have to die under the weight of sin. That's the whole point of all of this. And so we're in rebellion to him when we try to be the king of our own lives and say, I can do it, I'm just going to try harder. It's coming to him and saying, I belong to you and my life is in your hands and not my own. When a person commits suicide, they're taking life into their own hands. They're saying, I'm going to be the God of my life now, and I'm going to decide when my last day is. We don't have the right to do that. God has not given us permission to do that. One of the things that we have to learn, and and this younger generation here, one of the things that you guys are going to have to learn that is you're going to be faced with in a few years is that it's okay to suffer. America has forgotten this. We're, now we're getting into assisted suicide and euthanasia and, and abortion, all these kind of things. Well, well this person's going to suffer, so we should decide that that person doesn't have to suffer. We don't get to decide that. The Bible does not give us room to decide that. God decides. And God may, some of us in here have been through it. We've, we've had, maybe you've dealt with a condition or you've had a loved one that you just saw suffer for a long time with an illness. And you ask yourself, wouldn't it have been better if that person just went to be with the Lord five or ten years ago? And the answer is no. As hard as that is to hear, the answer is no, because he has a plan. And because our suffering is not wasted. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So what does that person receive for all of their suffering? If they're in Christ, they will receive glory for the suffering that they have. Don't rob someone of their glory by taking their life. Don't rob yourself of glory by taking your own life. The last thing I want you to see here is the value of revelation. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. First thing I want you to see is the promise of death. So this is a promise that Jesus is going to be betrayed and died here. And, And you'll notice the quote here is actually from Zechariah 11:13, which Pastor Wesley read earlier. So why does Matthew here say that it's Jeremiah and the quotation is actually from Zechariah? Does that mean Matthew's wrong? Well, no. What that means is, is you have to remember in this time, the Bible was not in books. They did not have it in pages and, and bound together like we have books today. It was scrolls. And so a lot of times they would have multiple books or multiple letters on one scroll and the, the reference, the way that you would pick out that scroll was based on the first book in the scroll. So whenever they would pull out a scroll of the minor prophets, the first prophet in the scroll on the minor, minor prophets was Jeremiah. And so how is it that he is quoting Zechariah, but he's saying it was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah? What he's saying is, if you go grab the minor prophet scroll that starts with Jeremiah, you're going to find this verse in there. That's what he's saying. Um, so just to clarify that, God is still true and every man's a liar. Um, so, the other thing is that 30 shekels here, it talks about 30 pieces of silver here, Jesus is sold for 30 pieces. What's the significance of that? 30 pieces of silver was the price of a, of a common slave. That's how much it costs for a common slave. So again, if we ask, how do we value, are we appreciating the king this morning? Jesus goes to the rulers and says, how much will you give me? They said, well, we'll give you enough for a common slave. That's what we think the son of God is worth. It's 30 pieces of silver. And Judas said, I think he's worth that too because he accepted that price. So they thought so little of him that they didn't even think about him as a person, really. That's what they thought he was worth. One commentator said, if getting wealth was Judas' aim, 
He must have been profoundly disappointed and angry when it finally dawned on him that Jesus was not going to set up an earthly kingdom and appoint disciples like himself to positions of honor and economic privilege. This was the the thought over and over again. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to kick out the Romans. We're going to have this glorious empire on the earth again. And then we're going to get to rule with him. Remember, the disciples are always arguing in Matthew of who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to get to rule this or get this money or get whatever? And Judas has the money bag and he loves the money. And he's thinking, I'm going to be set if I follow this Jesus guy when he, when he kind of takes over and does all that. And then I'm going to kind of ride in on his coattails. And then I'm going to have a big house, big money, all that. Guess what? People have been doing that for 2,000 years. There's people on TV right now. There's certain channels you can turn on TV. And that guy is a Judas that is following Jesus to get money. It, ha- it happens. It still happens today. It happens in this community. I, I, would, I would not be surprised if we went around and listened to sermons in this community if you didn't hear a sermon somewhere today that was about Jesus getting you money. And you see how it turned out for Judas in the end. Why? Because they appraised him so little. Think about how little you have to think about the sovereign king of the universe to think that even millions of dollars is in comparison to his worth. How low do you have to appreciate Jesus to, change, to exchange a lifetime of pleasure in this sinful, broken world for eternal life in heaven. There's people that are going to do that. They're going to get all their wealth, all their blessing right now. Who, all this stuff is going to fall apart and burn up. Who wants that? That's a horrible investment. That's why we lay up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it. So we see the promise of death. By the way, the prophet Zechariah was prophesying this exact moment in history hundreds of years before it happened. So the whole argument, you know, oh, well, the Bible was just a bunch of men that got together and made up these stories, and it's, it's just a moral story about being a good person. That's nonsense. It's, re- it's ridiculous to think that this man, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, is prophesying about how much money, the specific amount of money that he was going to be betrayed for in order for this to happen. Someone please explain to me how a bunch of smart men can come up with something like that. It's, it's impossible. It can't happen. And that's one of hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are specifically answered. Not like the kind that, that you hear about God's going to bless you this year and 2022 is going to be the year of favor for you. All these generic type blessings. I'm talking specific, like somebody's going to come and do this exact thing and it's going to be 30 pieces of silver and that's how you're going to know that he's the one that did it. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The second thing is the promise of life. The promise of life here. Romans 5, 18 through 21 says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. That's the second Adam, Jesus. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's your promise this morning? Your promise this morning is no matter how much sin that you've done, there is more grace. There is, there, his grace is sufficient for every one of your sins this morning. So the question is, how do you value Jesus today? If you appraise him rightly, you are going to inherit eternal life and peace with God. If you do not appraise him rightly, that which you value most will be taken away from you eventually. So trust God's word this morning and be blessed. Father, we, we do want to appraise you rightly. Lord, you are, you are more worthy of worship and more worthy of our lives than we can even understand. God, if, if it was not for your word, we, we would only have a small glimpse of who you are. And even that would be enough to worship you forever. That's why there's never been a people group discovered that did not worship because we were made for it, because you are evident in your creation, as your word says. And Lord, if we're honest, there are many times in our lives that we have idols, things that we value more than you. And those idols can't satisfy us. The sin that we enter in, the the condemnation that we feel after that sin can't satisfy us. You're the only true God. You're the only way of salvation. There is... No other name under heaven whereby men might be saved other than Jesus Christ, your son. So, Father, this morning, I pray for each person in this room that your Holy Spirit would do a work in their heart 
to give them faith to trust you today, whether that's for the very first time of them laying their burdens on you, of them confessing their, their inability before you and asking for your help, or whether that's the millionth time that they've done that. Lord, we all need it this morning. Help us to take the idols of our heart and to lay them down before you now, to burn them, to recognize that they are false gods, that they will not lead, lead us in the way that we want to go, and that you love us, and that you desire good things for your children. And so help us, Lord, to trust you more today. In Jesus' name, amen.